0: Welcome back to the Walton Supply Chain Center Series on on On-Shelf Availability. We're rejoining and continuing our conversation with Myron Burke, the CEO of Divergence Technologies. All right, good morning and welcome to Conversations on Retail. My name is Matt Pfeiffer and we are so excited to continue Mike Green's series focused on on On-Shelf Availability. It is a soggy day in Northwest Arkansas and uh, we're back from a A bit of an extended break from the the holidays, and I know Mike uh, has been traveling and and hitting conferences and so forth, but we're super excited to be back. Mike's guest today is our friend Myron Burke. He's the founder and CEO of Divergent Technology Advisors, based here in Northwest Arkansas. And the two of them are going to be talking today about the impact of serialized items on retail supply chains.
1: No, it's not trivial, you know, and, 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 and a great person in this space. Uh, and you know him well, John Phillips. He and I used to have some some just passionate conversations on this topic because, you know, if you you, you take you know beverages like Pepsi or Coke or something like that, um, or, or bags of chips and snacks, you know, the volume on those it's tremendous. And the, the thought of serializing that, you know, if I sell one can of intake take your favorite beverage, I sell one can uh, a million times a day. Well, that just that's one line of data with a quantity tracker of a million on. If I serialize that, that's suddenly a million lines of data. If I serialize that by 20 different read points, it's 20 million lines of data, right? Or I've got extended fields in the database. they are smarter guys than me to figure out the database structure. But the multiplier is tremendous. But I don't need to hold that for a year I might be able to look at ways to do hot and cold storage of that. I think this is where there needs to be a lot more mind exercises in it. But there's also things that start to happen with, hey, where does that stuff end up? Do I have people crossing you know, legal contracts on bottling rights and things that I don't have visibility to it today? So I think the use cases get very different as you move through different product codes. The complexities are very different based off volumes and some companies do serialize, right? The, the TVs, the computers, the phones, Apple, Samsung, et cetera. They do a lot of that already. So I could link this serial number to my product manufacturer serial number. And now I have a direct correlation to all the piece parts. We've seen the airlines do some of this as well. Um, database architecture, I think edge edge databases are going to become a big thing uh, in clearing houses on some of, them, some of these elements um, that says, when do I care about this? I think you'll see AI, generative AI at the edge. This is this is a slow, methodical move because the data out there is is not good today. But as the data gets better, the ability to put edge AI in a generative method out uh, in the space and start looking at the performance of serial numbers, hey, these are very consistent with a normal pattern. We can start to dump those into cold storage for 30 days. Hey, these – these are questionable. We want to watch this for a return at another store because it didn't follow the normal travel path. And then these are, hey, this is an alert. We we need some sort of action. Are we triggering video to capture additional information here so we can build a case on a potential organized crime uh, and tying that together? So I think the sophistication of that, what you see in retail inventory markets across all the activities that happen, and those are directly connected to the financial markets. I think you'll see the retail inventory markets start to mirror more of the financial traceability markets, because at the end of the day, the financial markets are a subset of what happens in some of these retail wholesale product markets. It's the asset that's moving and causing the financial ability. If we start tracking the asset, we can get more insights to the financial crimes that are happening in the background as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so practically, if I think about the way the retail supply chain works, items are set up, purchase orders are built, I need 50 of these, uh, and, and I want them delivered to this location. Uh, that's at the UPC level. And then advanced shipment notifications are I shipped the 50, and the invoicing, I want to be paid for the 50, and it flows through the supply chain. Now I've got this whole other piece of data, which is, I have the fifty or million Pepsi cans. I thought it was a really probably a better example. Does that go through traditional kind of EDI platforms? I've heard a lot about this thing called EPcis from GS1. I bring practically, we have a have to way of be able to store that data and assign those attributes to, to it as an individual company. But more importantly, how do we communicate across the supply chain in a common way? Is EPcis is the right way? Is EDI the right way? How do we how do we think about that?
1: So uh, that's a big, big question. I I think um, there's some room in this space for some work groups. You know, we have ETCIS, which can certainly do this. The problem is it becomes becomes a lot more transactions, and you're defining where you want the serialized data in the man segment of the ASN. I think there's a lot more opportunity for machine-to-machine communication here that says, hey... Here's, here's your PO, we're saying it's full, and here's the serial numbers we read in that. Can the vendor-supplier relationship have a machine-to-machine view that says, okay, our machine's going to look at your finalized outbound uh, bill of lading and we're gonna match our receiving invoice to that and we'll we'll get a green off of that match. So I can store it in a partner location. Uh, maybe the vendor stores that record and the and the receiver looks up against it. Uh, in a direct relationship that works. In an indirect relationship there has to be an intermediary that's capturing that, maybe it's 3PL. But I think this is where you know groups like GS1 really strive in getting industry together to talk about, okay, how should this relationship work? Does everybody need a physical copy? Or can we do virtual copy? And we work with virtual servers and virtual databases for a long, long time. So I think the Microsoft, Dells, uh, Amazons of the world can play in this space as well um, to help define, hey, what's the most efficient way to do this? And then sort of your, your business action groups start looking at it and saying: hey, financially that works um, because we, we may do an assumed receipt anyway. Um, so there's, there's lots of things depending on the contract relationships that this can be done without having to replicate all that data at every location. Okay. Um, but, but there's a lot more to discuss there. I don't think that's a silver bullet that anybody has their arms around. Cause just not enough people are, are looking at it uh, at this high of level.
0: Yeah. I know there was uh, I, I think you were involved as well. There was a, there was a major um, study by Auburn university several years ago called the chip project, the chain uh, integration was- project. And that it was a nice way of saying that there's a big bucket of money called claims claims are being basically saying, I, I asked for 50 of these shirts and you only sent 40. So I'm going to claim, or I'm going to deduct that from my invoice. Uh, there was a product authentication. Mm-hmm. Hey, am I really paying for Nike shoes or are these a ripoff, et cetera? It's potentially, you know, pharmaceuticals. Is it really made from the manufacturer? Do I have that trust? Uh, and we we really, I think everybody rallied around it. There were some huge numbers that were shown, et cetera. But I I still haven't seen a real practical, hey, I am a retailer. I'm a supplier. I ordered 50 of these. You shipped me 45, and I could tell you that I didn't get them all. Well, yeah, you did. Here's the 50 SG10s that I sent you, the unique serial numbers I sent uh-huh. you. Go scan your. If you got them, you got them. I'm not paying the deduction because the reality is you just didn't catch them on the read, but you did get them. So it's the ability to be able to, conf, you know, basically debate or throw data against claims or shrink or product authentication issues, et cetera. But again, we're we're several years in since that study, and I, you know, I think the industry is still struggling with a way of doing this.
1: I, I think they're struggling. But I think, at least from my seat, I I'm seeing companies actually want to study that, mm-hmm. um, and I think this is unfortunately it's a topic that nobody wants to be public about. It's a little bit like inventory when we first started that in like two thousand seven, yep. uh, two thousand five, because nobody wants to admit that there's in- inventory is sixty percent accurate. Because how do I answer you know how do I answer a question at a at a Goldman Sachs conference or to Wall Street. Yeah. about that that number because i I don't have an answer um i think the same thing is hey i've got situations where the vendor intentionally shipped me short because it was on time and full or whatever it may be and i'd rather be have something there than nothing there because I, I can't sell nothing i can sell 70 percent of the order yep. um and make up the difference I, I've seen cases documented where unfortunately some suppliers or intermediaries have substituted a cheap product for a more expensive product and didn't change the box labeling or the bill of lading. And so there's, you know, 200 units of the wrong item shipped in the wrong box that are going to flow through a DC and down to the store. And now I've got 400 units of error because I'm over and under, right? So it doubles. Um, And that was done intentionally. Uh, because of the pressure of business in a post-COVID supply chain. Uh, and it's like, hey, I think we can get away with it because nobody's, we don't think anybody's looking. Um, that's bad business in, in all aspects, but how do you find that? Well, it doesn't show up till it's at the store, and then we're post-auditing, and then are we going to open every box on every truck? Barcodes have got us to a place where we're not really wanting to do that. The serialization with EPC starts to give you the capability to do that free audit check and to do that green lighting of a PO and saying, hey, this one's clear to pay, everything looks great, or hey, we're going to keep this one open on five units, so we'll pay everything but five, but we've got 28 days on our terms to look for those five. If they show up, we'll release the rest of the funds. If they don't, we'll find a claim. I think it makes business more transparent as to what's going on. And it's the pressure of human conversations that sometimes we don't want to have because we don't have an answer that the data like this data, serialized data at this level can tell us, hey, we're just short, but we're working on it. Or, hey, we didn't see it, but we're we're actively looking for it because I've got a system that's actively looking for it. I'm not having to pull the cashier off a register to try to go look for something that they don't know where it is, uh, which is sort of a failure uh, task to begin with. So I think we're getting there. People are starting to wrap their head around it. I think, you know, economics always play into this. Uh, You have to have some use cases and some audits on the ground to quantify that there's value there. I think Chip started that. It opened the door. But then it's like, okay, well, which of these five issues that Chip identified do I have? And some companies have one or two. Some have five. Uh, but they've got to understand how good or bad they are in their own eyes and how how they start to attack that without wrecking their company. So you're kind of doing open heart surgery um, on, on the company while the company is awake. And and that's a sensitive space to play. Yep. Um, and and you, you want to be great, but you also don't want to set a separate precedent for yourself. And that's just the, the hard part about being CEOs of big companies. Uh, Sometimes you can do something that puts a target on your back. So um, I think this has traction over the next 10, 15 years as we look at the leverage from the data. Again, if you, if you go back to the barcode, we're celebrating 50 years of the barcode, which was developed to sell product. Mm -hmm. Look at all the things we do with barcodes, all the things in shipping and containers and tracking and, medicine and documents and files and records uh, and now 2D barcodes and, you know, menus. Nobody thought we'd be ordering food off a 2D barcode at restaurant, right? But we're doing it. So Uh, I think we're still learning things from the barcode. Serialization will be 50 years plus of learnings in a much faster timeline.
0: Yeah. I was going to say that's about the only thing that good that came out of COVID. We all learned how to scan a uh, 2D barcode. (laughs) For a menu, yeah.
1: Unfortunately, unfortunately, now my TV screen's covered half the time with the QR code too. So
0: <laughs> that's a good point. That is a great point. That's a great point. Well, here, here's the we got, we got a few minutes left, and we've had a couple of questions, um, and I think we've answered them. So I'm not going to go back into those. Here's the here's the give us the so what. I mean, what are the what are the actual questions. Uh, th- what, what are the questions that I didn't ask that I should have? I mean, where are we going with this thing? W- where do you see the next two to three to five to 10 years? I mean, you mentioned some of this stuff. You know, wh- what exactly should we be thinking about, about if I'm a retailer or I'm a supplier, uh, how do I, n- now I know what serialization serialized data is. I know some of those potential use cases. How do I get involved to get more actively involved and start thinking about and, and a- actually implementing some of these solutions?
1: Um, I think there's a there's kind of a decision tree it's starting to look at, hey, what are, the, what are the biggest value points I can get out of serialization uh, in my business and, and finding those nuggets, uh, sort of like companies did with sustainability, right? It, it took some, some pushing and, and people found real value in sustainability at the economic level, not just the, more, the moral level of, of the company. I think finding those nuggets for serialization – On both the internal operations and the customer satisfaction experience and sales side. Um, Partnering with groups, um, you know, GS1, having an active proponent in GS1 looking at the information learning about that. I think learning from groups like Auburn, um, Michigan State, and others around these organizations that have labs that look at things in a, in a very independent view, and, and talking with solution providers. Like, what are they doing? What are they offering bring to the table solutions? And what use cases can they share to get educated? Uh, and I think have a team that's on your tech side looking at, hey, if we move to serialization and keep the serial number and the event trackers what do we need to do from a data architecture perspective? So the architect teams need to be really involved. And how do we best manage that and, 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 and then be able to recall that information for business value? And then start to think of it strategically. This, this is a transformation. It is not a project. You know, a lot of RFID things were, well, it's a project. We're going to put tags on product. I'm like, yeah, that's step one. Like, what are you going to do with it after that? That's the transformational strategy. So I think now that we have Sunrise 2027 and this becomes a barcode, RFID, other potential symbology capability, um, I'm looking at how do I put serialization to work in my business Mm-hmm. Um, the same way that companies like, uh, you know, I think I think it's interesting because fast retailing done some of this. Dillard's, they had a serial and others did this. They put these yellow stickers on that serialized the transaction. They scanned it after the sale they scanned the G10, and scanned the serial number, and that was sort of their proof of purchase tracker, um, almost like a POS transaction log, mm-hmm. um, and that gave them, you know, non receipt ref- refunds or verifiable of purchase. Uh, so I think they've done serialization in a way that's, that's not connected to RFID or or, or just uh, GS1 Sunrise Initiative, um, for, and they've done that for years. So I think there's companies that have done it and done it very well in a different way. It, it doesn't all have to be the same way, but once you think about serialization, you want to make sure you're reserving enough space for how big is the serial number on an RFID tag. Am I using the same serial number or something different on a QR code? How do I cross-reference those? thinking about the architecture in a way that allows you to use that universally and then move faster than barcodes did into a machine-to-machine engagement. And then it becomes, hey, a a business case for GS1 is, hey, you did chip. Now we really want to look at how do we reconcile this information and what's the most effective way to do that uh, as subscribers to this industry standards organization. They're very responsive to business interest. And so if the businesses start showing interest in that, uh, I think they can really accelerate uh, EPCIS, which is a, a really big blockchain model, uh, and other ways to, to do those types of active queries. Um, but it's, it's getting in the game and getting allowing people in your organization and challenging people in your organization to think about what would we need to do different systemically if everything we scanned was serialized? Hmm. Exactly. Interesting. And I think that's the the challenge question of today, you know, is to, to get people to start having that discussion in 2024. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Nope. I think that makes sense. I mean, and, and the early adopter of this, obviously from twenty two thousand and three, 2003 RFID as a technology sort of led the way, because it almost had to be, if you're going to scan something, you got to have a unique serial number to know how many times did I count you? You can't just count UPCs. Cause I'd never be able to do it. Right. But we still haven't made that leap for, from that to we're sort of going up that pyramid to starting with inventory accuracy, then finding product in the store, or, or then asset protection. We're still, for the most part, inside the store. Love to see us get into the upstream supply chain. That's what CHIP was all about. But unfortunately, we, we are not where I think, I, where I was hoping we would be, I thought we would be farther along. And there's some great companies that have worked on it. It's just hard. It's just, it's just, it's it's a lot of stuff, difficult stuff to get through.
1: I think it's hard. And, and and I think when I look back at most of those programs, which have been great for moving the needle in the, the EPC RFID space and some in the in the in the 2D R code space. And and I full transparency, I sit on an innovation advisory board for GS1 still and we talk about these things with, with multiple industry partners in the in the board is Most of those projects were around very much about, hey, inventory because we're chasing supply chain with COVID, inventory because we're inaccurate, we're disappointing customers. But most of those, the serial number gets dropped off to account because Mm -hmm. the architecture discussion didn't happen with the EPC project. They were disconnected. And I think the learning for me over the years has been if you don't bring the serial number through the enterprise, there's a point where it doesn't matter if you had the serial number or not, you're fixing, mm-hmm. you're putting a bit of a bandaid on a problem, but you're not able to rectify the problem because it's not going into your forecast mm-hmm. because you're dumping off the intelligence that you had in converting it to just a, a zero or a plus one or minus one. Okay. And so I think that's the biggest learning over the year for me is serialization is a, an enterprise transformation project. Um, you know, i spent a lot of time at NRF talking with a lot of the enterprise companies on forecasting and WMS and ERP systems. And, and I was asking this, hey, how's your company thinking about serialization? And everybody's like, um, don't know if we have that discussion. And that person's definitely not here, but mm-hmm. let's follow up. Yeah. And so, you know, even, even me just kind of probing the – pushing, poking the bear a little bit, kind of like, hey – we got to do a better job of raising the awareness on this. And so I think, you know, kudos to you and Matt for pulling this together because I think it's a discussion that kind of sneaks up on people. Um, but I think it's a really important dis- discussion because I think our future of, of product identity, whether it's barcodes or RFID or something else, is in a serialized world. It won't be a Big Bang Theory. Everything will happen at the same time. Things will happen at different speeds. But if it starts happening, it's going to happen across the supply chain because we can't run multiple protocols very well for very long. Yeah,
0: yeah. When we get when we get this transition, success looks like we don't have a data serialization project or a 2d barcode project or an RFID project they just they're woven into the factory nobody has UPC projects in companies anymore they just it's foundational like electricity and water coming to a house right it's foundational we're just not there yet we got to get enough case studies where people say this isn't going to be all like electricity we got to make the investment to, for the infrastructure to be able to do this then the use cases make it much easier because right now every project seems it's it's, it's plowing new ground I think
1: it is, but um, gosh, you triggered my memory, um, which is getting harder to do these days. <laughs> um, I think, I, I, I believe you and I actually sat on a supply chain steering committee cross-functional years ago with uh, Ken Boyd and some different folks from other, uh, other partners yep. in the supplier space. And we talked about what barcodes should be used in the supply chain on cases and what types of things should we be doing. And it mm-hmm. became an influencing community. And I think we've lost to those, a lot of those communities over the years. Um, and that might be something that we need to try to resurrect with partnership from GS1 and, and, and AIM and the grocery, uh, you know, GMA. Um, uh, those groups, I think, have a lot of power to pull teams together. But I think having willing participants in the teams to have the, the discussion and get people to sit around the table and talk about it once or twice a year um, is really powerful. And I think we've lost a little bit of that over the years. So, so maybe it's time we resurrect some history around that.
0: Well, we were on a call this morning and I can't tell you who I was on the call with, because that would be inappropriate, but it was all about the food safety modernization act 204, which basically says yep. by 26 with food, you've got to have traceability and identification, et cetera. And it's all the way through the supply chain. And everybody was like, well, everybody can do it their own way. I go, that makes no sense at all. I mean, if you're going to do this, I would think people like Chipotle and McDonald's and Walmart and Kroger and et cetera would all get in a room and go, what's the best way to do this? So it's all lock arms and say, that's the best way to do this. That's not collusion. That's not antitrust. It's creating a standard boy okay. habit because then adoption by the supplier community and collaboration makes much more easy versus everybody's going to try to do it their own way. I agree with you. I think. I think there has been a lack of, there's been a lot of really great standards, but there hasn't been a lot of, of. of hey, there's a lot of standards that gives us a lot of choices. But how are we going to execute the FSMA work for 2004 across the retail supply chain? I think everybody's going to kind of struggle with that. Yep. yep. Myra, as always, wonderful job. Thank you so much. It's always enjoyable to to touch base with you. Um, any any parting thoughts? Uh, any, any, any ways that your your company could help some of the companies who are struggling mm-hmm. with it?
1: Um, well, you know, we're always always willing to help. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I think I'll, I'll part with this this uh, thing I think you'd asked me about in our, our pre-discussion. You know, on my, on my website, I have this quote around open input and debate are critical elements to creating strategic direction of a business. Um, but more importantly, if we all around the table agree, then most of us aren't necessary. Good point. And I think sometimes we find ourselves in meetings where it's kind of like, yeah, I don't want to create any friction. I don't necessarily agree, but I don't want to be that person. And I think we, we've got to have the boldness to be able to ask questions and challenge each other and have have an active professional debate. It's not personal. It's not not full disagreement. It's just, hey, is this the right thing? Hey, are we thinking about this? What are we going to do? Why are we getting rid of this data? What are we going to do when we need it? Um, that helps people make better decisions and better planning. Uh, and, and that's, you know, part of the name of our my company is, is Divergent because we try to think about things differently. We think more with the end in mind, versus the initial project or or the bogey of a PL to go get we we want to get those things, but we want to help people do it in a way that helps set them up for the future and that adds cost of, of rework or tech debt as they go down the pathway. Um, so always happy, happy to help. Sometimes it's just lending an ear and listening to people or, or giving them a like, hey, why would you think of it that way uh, type of challenge? Uh, but I think a lot of these things, these will be solved in collaboration with uh, w- w- with smart groups and people who want to who want to be leaders in the space or maybe some have a tremendous amount of uh, serialized inventory in their stores and they're trying to figure out, wait, why am I not realizing as much value as I expected? Uh, How are you treating the data? And usually that's a question that yields a lot of fruit. So uh, it's always a pleasure, Mike Uh, and Matt, thank you all for the time. And and to the audience, thank you all for attending and and all the things you do. Uh, And if we can help in any way, we're uh, certainly happy to do that.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Matt and uh, Myron. I appreciate it very much. Uh, incredible discussion, and uh, it will not be the last time we have a t- discussion with you. It's always pr- provocative. It's thinking through it. It's challenging our thinking. And to your point, th- there is an opportunity to be disagreeing without being disagreeable, because I think if 10 of us are all in the same room and we all have the same thoughts, then some of us don't need to be here. It's okay to have a conflicting you know, points of view, and I, and I think that makes us stronger, because uh i i don't think you just take one one person's answer and drive down drive down the road with it so thank you very much matt uh thank you very much myron appreciate it and uh appreciate the audience for for participating take care